Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the practical voice podcast. This episode of VUX World is brought to you by the Conversational Academy. If you've seen the episode or heard the episode with Hans Van Damme on the podcast, then you'll have got a glimpse into what the Conversational Academy is all about. I get asked all the time about where can I go to learn voice design and VUI design or conversation design, and most of the courses that are out there, you know, there's a couple out there, you have to go to a certain location at a certain time and you know if you don't live in London or you don't live in Belgium then you've got no chance of getting there essentially Uh, so the Conversation Academy is all online it's a whole host of videos and kind of like question and answer kind of exam thing at the end. But you can take it at your own pace. You can do it in your own time. I'm doing it every single morning and I've been doing it and it's absolutely, genuinely fantastic. Some of the videos are like five minutes. Some of them are three minutes. Some of them are like 12 minutes. So it depends on the topic, obviously. Um, but it, it gets into supreme detail about everything to do with conversation design right from the very, very beginning. The theory of conversation design through to working on a specific project in terms of what do you do in the discovery phase. There's all kinds of diagrams and all kinds of like templates that you can use to bottom out a discovery phase from your likes of understanding the business needs and the user needs and and then going into the design phase and understanding the bot persona and the user persona and conversation design techniques and you know the ins and outs of the technology and psychology and copywriting techniques it honestly it goes into detail on absolutely everything you will not need to take another course or read another book once you've done this course so if you are looking to get into VUI design and conversation design and you're looking for somewhere to start you're looking for a kind of leg up to bring your knowledge to you know the industry standard level of knowledge and, and get yourself into a position where you can be either applying for jobs or trying to win clients or just trying to get your understanding to a point where you can go ahead and really build uh, a successful and uh, a kind of engaging skill or action or conversational interface then you should check out the, the uh, conversational academy as I say, it's done by Robocopy and Hans Van Dam. Check out that podcast with them if you want to hear a little bit more. And if you are interested in the Conversational Academy and, and, and becoming a voice designer, then check out the course. The link is in the show notes. If you're on the website, it's in the show notes on the webpage. If you're on your podcast player, it's in the show notes in your podcast player. This episode of VUX World is a really, really exciting one. We're talking about accessibility. Now, you might not think that that sounds exciting, but the whole episode today is focusing on one person called Susan who has MS, multiple sclerosis, and it takes us through the whole case study from right right from the very, very, very beginning. You know, the situation that Susan's in, her situation, her kind of support needs, um, and it goes right the way through to designing a voice interface that meets her needs and, and we'll get into some real detail about the ins and outs of accessibility on voice first devices specifically looking at the echo device there's actually quite a lot of barriers that prevent people from actually adopting the technology there's a lot of barriers that prevent people from using the technology over time uh, there's a lot of design choices which are actually in today's you know today and age with situational design and stuff like that some of the design choices are actually counterintuitive or counter to what the current practice is but it works for people with multiple sclerosis or with cognitive impairments so this episode not only is it looking at some of the challenges around voice today from not just an accessibility perspective but you know from a general perspective that actually all applies uh, you know throughout the industry really um, but so it's not only looking at some of the, the challenges that exist but also how do you find a solution in and around those challenges how do you create something that anybody can use if somebody needs care you know most, most of the day most of the time to do more stuff like changing the channel on a TV how do you 
get around those challenges to design something that works for them. And I really do think that this is such an inspirational episode. At the end of this episode, um, you'll have a real understanding about the human-centered design practice and how you can apply that for the specific user you're trying to target and your specific use case and context that they're in. Really is enlightening. We're joined by Ruby Steele and Will Merrill of Smart Design Worldwide to discuss a project called The Big Life Fix and Susan and the project that brought voice to Susan. It's absolutely fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. VUX World. Branding with the big faces. I love listening to it. Kane Sims. Kane Sims. Kane Sims, the one and only. Britain's finest, Mr. Kane Sims. Dustin. Dustin. Dustin Coates. I like it when you guys are together and talking about voice. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Cool. So, without further ado then, Ruby Steele and Will Merrill, welcome to VUX World. Hello, hi. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks for joining us. You did a very good thing there of, of uh, waiting for each other to speak, because I still haven't learned this, Dustin. I'm still introducing two people at once. <laughs> no, no, it looks like we've got some pros on our hands, so I'm looking forward to, to, to this. <laughs> we're good so do you want to tell us we'll start with uh we'll do some intros ruby and will you can tell us a little bit about yourselves and and how you've kind of got into the position that you're in and, and how you have kind of stumbled across voice and stuff like that and we can talk a little bit about smart design worldwide and then the the main project that we're going to chat about which is the big life fix which is sounds really really interesting so we can't wait to hear from that but maybe we'll kick off with you ruby do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about how you found yourself uh, working on voice projects absolutely okay so uh yeah i'm ruby Steele. um i my role at smart design is uh design strategy but my background is really uh quite a kind of uh, mixed bag i studied uh, innovation design engineering um, at the royal college of art and fell into human-centered design out of that because i've always really loved understanding real people and being inspired and designing for real stories so uh, smart design was somewhere that um, I always really wanted to work Uh, it's very much uh, based on human-centered design as it's kind of that's really in our DNA so it was a really good fit for me because every single project we do starts with people Um, and my role here is is design strategy, which means that um, I'm at the point in the project where you go out into the world and talk to people and watch them, find out how things could be better, and then work with the design team to create new products and services to meet those needs. Fantastic. What about you, Will? Uh, yeah, so I am a, I'm an industrial designer here at Smart. So, so what that means is I traditionally was... Um, Educated in uh, in the design of like physical products, so um, be it a, a, a can opener or a, a peeler. Um, but that role has really evolved, I'd say, in the last few years, um, and it's now more of a it's product experience. I think is a good way of describing it, but more kind of um, holistic design, really. Where um, along with Ruby, I often get involved in in the research, so um, going in field and, and trying to uncover these insights. But then it's taking those insights and trying to come up with um, really engaging uh, solutions and propositions. So it could be a physical product, but it could also be an experience. It could be um, 
It could be a, a, a digital uh, product. It could be a physical product. Uh, it could be a voice uh, product. Yeah, we we were lucky enough to start experimenting with voice um, a couple of years ago now um, in the context of working for uh, Big Life Fix. So for those that don't know, Big Life Fix is a BBC Two documentary that looks um there was a team of designers, um, of which I was one, who were all working alongside their day jobs to uh, crack real real world problems for uh, vulnerable people across the UK. Um, there were multiple different uh, stories um, that were being uh, showcased on the programme. Um, but the particular one that Smart Design and I got involved in um, was designing a, a voice-controlled um experience for a woman living with MS um, and actually up until that point um, smart design um, hadn't actually done any voice control uh, voice control um, work before and so this was really our chance to take all of the learnings that we have in human-centered design and apply it to a voice um, interaction which was really interesting yeah and I think that's that's also like I was saying it's um, it really shows why design or how design has evolved from what traditionally would have been I, I traditionally probably would have been working directly with engineers and factories to make physical things but um, my position has evolved and now we're dealing with um, this this huge new kind of area of holistic kind of experiences and looking at new technologies and, and that doesn't necessarily involve a physical thing okay so we've got Dustin over there in Paris Plenty of people listening to this over in America, in Germany, in you know all different corners of the world. For those that don't know the BBC Big Life Fix and, and to help them, those that haven't seen the, the actual documentary and seen the stuff that you're talking about, can you just explain um, for someone who's not familiar with it the specifics of the work that you did? So you mentioned it was for somebody with MS and, and you'd create a voice kind of product for them. What was the product? What needs was it serving? And you know what was the kind of solution? How did it work? Absolutely. So the premise of Big Life Fix was to have um, a design made for just one person. So in every case, you had a designer or a team of designers working on a problem for just one person, which in itself is a really interesting proposition because you go a lot deeper with your understanding when you're working for, for just one person. So in our case, we were working for a 67-year-old woman called Susan. She uh, had living with MS for over 25 years. Uh, MS is uh, multiple, multiple sclerosis. It's a degenerative condition. It affects your um, cognitive um, ability as well as your dexterity and your mobility. So she lives in her own home, but she has two carers that come in four times a day to help her do everything uh, in daily life. Uh, she's not actually even able to sit up um, on her own unaided um, or get dressed or um, be, a, be able to feed herself. So she has these carers that come in and do all of those things. So that's kind of the context to which we were introduced and we spent loads of time with her in her home trying to get to the bottom of where could our design be best served? What need would be the most useful for, for her to be, to be met? What we... Close, but quickly realized is that 
a lot of the things that the rest of us will take for granted, like, uh, you know, answering the telephone or changing the channel on the TV or listening to music are all things that are out of reach for her. So because she's not actually able to interface with all the devices that allow those things, um, if you think about them, they're all covered in buttons, covered in switches using remote controls, and she can't control any of those. So she had to rely on her carers to do things like leave the television on for her or make a phone call for her so that she could then be left to, to, to have the conversation. And we were just struck with how incredi- incredibly uh, backward this is in a world where the rest of us are more connected and more in touch with everyone else than ever before. And there was this huge gap to us that we we wanted to fill. The obvious solution um, was some kind of voice controlled um, interface. Um, we jumped straight to things like the Amazon Alexa, the Google Home Hub, because as I'm sure everyone is very aware, they do a lot of the things that we deemed necessary for her. So they can turn the TV on, they can make phone calls, they can play any music you want from the world, they can have you play, listen to any book that you want to listen to. The problem is, that those um, those interfaces, those uh, voice controlled uh, devices, are first of all made for people that are super familiar with technology. They literally assume you have a smartphone. You can't actually set one up without a smartphone. So you're already going to be the kind of person who knows what a smartphone can do. And you've got to understand that Susan hasn't used a mobile phone or a laptop or anything like that in quite a few years now. So her knowledge gap is massive. And the kind of mental model that the rest of us rely on to kind of understand what, an, for example, an Alexa might do um, is very much based on our on our understanding. So there was that problem. The other problem is that MS does affect your cognitive ability. And Susan has what she calls foggy moments where she knows what she wants to say, but the word doesn't quite come at the speed that she wants it to come or or even just remembering the word itself. So when we put an Alexa down in front of her, it kept timing out. It kept not being able to meet her needs. And that was where the project really took off we realized that we needed to create almost like an accessibility feature to the Alexa. We didn't want to start rebuilding all the hardware. We didn't need to connect. It's already done a fantastic job of connecting to the TV, to make phone calls, to listen to music. We didn't need to touch any of that. What we needed to do was redesign the voice UI itself so that Susan could use it. That's yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, there's a, a lot to talk about there. The one thing that I want to talk about really quickly is you mentioned the smartphone. Is the problem just the setting up of it, or are you saying that really even our interactions are shaped by our interactions on Alexa, our interactions on Google Assistant are shaped by the smartphone paradigm itself? Yeah, I think I think that's completely right. Um, I think you've got to remember when the when the iPhone was launched, um, I think 2007, the concept of an app didn't exist before that. So these kind of discrete um, 
products that's lived within a device. Uh, it was quite novel, quite new. Um, and I think the new, so the new iteration, these voice UI products rely on that understanding to, to use them. So you kind of already know that this device probably works similarly to a, a phone might, but then you probably just interact with it through your voice rather than through touch. Um, and if you don't have that prior knowledge of, of this system, then it really gets quite confusing because you end up talking to it in a way which it's not either it's not designed to be talked to or um, you just don't fully understand the mental model like Ruby was saying is missing. You just don't understand how you're meant to communicate with it. Also, from a practical point of view, you cannot set up an Alexa without the app. Like you can't, there is no app free version of Alexa. If you buy a, an Alexa, a, a, an Echo Dot, you, the first thing it will tell you to do in the box is download the app. So it, it's already excluding people like Susan from, from the get-go. Um, and actually, we've heard stories since we've been sharing this, um, this case study of um, blind people that were really disappointed in that, that, you know, the whole point surely is that you don't have to deal with the screen readers and all the kind of accessibility features of a smartphone. You should just be able to go straight there. Uh, but, but that's just on a practical level, just not how, how it works. That's interesting that because that's one of the things that um, voice technology gets touted as is is the most accessible interface that's existed before it. But that's such a good point. I've never even that, and that just goes to show how much of a sort of a digital native we all are. Is I think probably most people that listen to this podcast would never even think about the fact that you first need to download the app and enable the app and link the app to your device as being a a barrier. So how how did you go about then solving that? How did you go about creating that accessibility kind of layer or jacket, as you kind of explained? Well, we kind of had three key things that we were trying to do with our product. Um, the first was uh, how we could uh, personalize the content of what an Alexa can do, because it's there's about 20,000 skills on on the Alexa where does one begin the first thing we needed to do was narrow it right down to strip everything back so that just what Susan needed was on there um the second thing that we needed to do was help guide her through the content we had to give her in a in a situation where you're just relying on voice you need feedback. You need more feedback than uh, than than if you were ju- if you were looking at a screen because you're using your eyes when you're looking at a screen to tell you whether you're in the right place to tell you whether you've gone down the right route. So in our case, we had to create audio versions of those things. And then the final thing was we needed to somehow uh, create more of a bond between Susan and the thing when you put when we put the uh, amazon echo down in front of her i mean she didn't even realize that she was supposed to talk to it it's like this black cylinder you know that's really quite intimidating and there's nothing there to say you should speak to it so those were kind of our three foundational yeah pillars yeah i think i mean on your original point about the the mobile phone i think it's interesting because of the situation the way big life fix was set up 
um, and it was literally just for one person. It was a very close um, a process. So we did, um, I don't know how we, I mean, we didn't solve that in this project, I think, basically. but um, so we had the ability to talk to uh, Susan's family and they could help us or help her set up the initial process. Uh, but I think it's such a big problem um, and it's something that we couldn't, solved straight away but I think like Ruby was saying we, we really focused on these three points three kind of key insights to really help um, make that interaction a lot easier for Susan. Mm. So the first thing that we did was we created a menu for her so I won't go into the technical details straight away well, maybe we can come to that second but if you just imagine this from an experiential point of view the first thing that she does is she says um, Alexa open my special menu and that we we have a menu open saying hello lovely Susan what would you like to do and this is where the personalization comes in so all that it offers her are things that we already know she wants to do it was watch something listen to something or speak to someone and in each of those you had watching television um, then you had listening to something was either music or books and talking to someone was either voice messages or phoning it kind of worked uh, a little bit like a kind of um, like a menu flow chart. Um, so she might say it, it would say, hello, lovely Susan, what would you like to do? She, watch something, listen to um, something or talk to someone. She might say watch something and it might it would then say, OK, let's watch something. Audio feedback just to remind her that she's in the kind of watching menu element. Um, which channel would you like to would would you like to watch channel one channel two and it would just take her through each of the options and we we designed it so that she only ever really had to give kind of one word answers um so that a it was it was clear for it to understand her and so she never got lost and we did this through an iterative process of trying different menu structures so that we knew that she would be able to do it so we did that um the next thing that we did was create a, a physical kind of, um, I guess, kind of casing for the Alexa for, to interact with. Yeah. So I think, well, just quickly on the point before, I think it may sound counterintuitive to to step backwards and uh, almost remove the ability of of Alexa, like stripping it back so that it doesn't have the same functionality. Like Ruby was saying, there's 20,000 discrete skills this thing has. And we're basically saying, well, um, 19,997 of those aren't important. Um, But I think, again, it's worth reiterating that um, uh, giving uh, Susan the ability to use three skills is is infinitely better than her having access to none. and I think that uh, you've got to understand that, like uh, Ruby was saying, this this is a very alien technology. So, so um, there was when people started using um, uh, mobile phones or smartphones specifically, uh, there was this learning curve where people were using apps very rarely, or they were only using really really using specific apps uh, very infrequently, and then you'd have this kind of novelty aspect where most of the apps people were using were kind of gag apps or kind of novelty apps and didn't really have a like a real function because no one really understood how to use the product so what we were intending to do here for susan is to to present her with really functional like best case like these are the core apps core skills that you need to use and here's how you access them basically um then on on ruby's second point um the idea of giving this 
uh, giving it a bit more of a presence. I think, um, yeah, so so uh, the, the echo itself is quite intimidating and it looks very uh, technological. It looks quite... Um, quite aggressive actually if you look at it it's this black cylinder um and and for susan that's quite intimidating if she's not used to interacting with technology um uh, especially this new um new paradigm of, of voice um presenting her with this cylinder which just sits there and kind of ominously waits for her to say something is really difficult for her to uh, kind of understand so what we wanted to do was to, to almost humanize uh, the technology and give it something which felt more meaning, meaningful for her. So, so we designed this. It's um, it's very specific to Susan, but uh, we designed this owl casing because she she adored owls. She was in the uh, girl guide. Yeah, the girl guide. She was head of the girl guide. And so. if, you, if you're not familiar with that, it's uh, like a. Um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's like uh, an after school club for um, young girls to learn things like. Um, like extracurricular activities but their kind of logo or not that they have a logo but the emblem is a, is an owl and she has uh, little ornaments of owls all over her house like it's just her favorite animal she she really likes them she kind of collects them so that was the obvious choice for us to to pick something for her to feel more attached and familiar yeah so i think i think the the the, the objective of of this kind of physical object there were, there were kind of two objectives really one was to, uh, like we were saying, kind of humanize it and make it something familiar to Susan. So she has uh, these ornaments in her home already, adding one more that she feels comfortable having around her made a lot of sense. But then also giving it more of a presence, so providing her with uh, visual feedback. Um, so there is a little bit of visual feedback in the, um, in the current product. There's that ring of light at the top. But uh, for someone like Susan, who doesn't have great eyesight, and also um, doesn't really understand what that lighting means. Um, it was quite abstract to her. So, so we basically made this owl, the whole of the owl illuminate. So when it was um, when it was uh, waiting to be spoken to, it was one color. It was it was illuminated. It was kind of like a gentle glow. As soon as she started to talk to it, it changed color. Um, and then when it was um, executing, so when it was doing a phone call, it would change color again. So you had these very obvious visual cues that susan could understand wow so it was so it was a physical owl that- it was it was a 3d printed um so we had uh, two different components to the setup it was all a little hacky but that's um just the kind of the nature of the project but we had um we had a housing which the the dots sat in and we had two dots but we'll kind of talk about that later and that kind of had the, the hardware hidden away. And then we had this second component, which was a 3D printed owl, basically, with um, a light array, an LED array inside it, which then kind of talked to the uh, to the dots. Yeah, you can kind of imagine it uh, like a sort of um, a speaker and and a, and a lampshade. That's a kind <laughs> of, of yeah. shape of an owl without yeah. a... <laughs> so that it sort of has a you know because this is something that's going to that lives in her home it lives in her living room so it needed to feel like it could fit in with the rest of the home environment yeah i think we wanted her to feel like she was having a conversation with the owl lampshade thing and then there was the the speaker unit which was the output basically 
Yeah, I didn't mean to kind of diminish your design there by <laughs> calling it a lampshade, but exactly I'm trying to think of ways to help people visualize what we're talking about. <laughs> and is, is that something that she specifically said to you that this design is really intimidating? It's the, you know, the black cylinder is intimidating. I want something that fits into my home or that's something that you just anticipated was going to be important for her. I think, I think what it, she didn't explicitly say that, but when we, we actually went to her home and took uh, this selection of products with us and we um, asked her to interact with it and start talking to it. And I think it's, it's what she didn't say more than what she did say. It was, um, it came across that she was very intimidated and she was almost uh, apologetic in her in her inability to use the products. So there would be a lot of sorries and, and oh, sorry, I, I didn't, and oh, can I start again? Or um, it felt very um, disjointed and um, it felt... Um, it just felt like it was an overwhelming um, feeling of intimidation, I guess. Yeah, it was a really distressing part of the process, actually, because we had to sit back and just let her try and use the product. Um, and as she struggled more and became more frustrated and was blaming herself more, we was we needed to sort of see how it played out. And I remember at one point she she sort of turned around and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm it's because I'm stupid that I can't use it. And we were, you know, trying to explain to her that it really wasn't because she was stupid. It was the failings of the product, not her. Um, and that is, I think, one of the the biggest, um, yeah, sort of problems with with the product as it is. Mm. They always say that it's always the case, isn't it, that when you ever do any sort of user research or usability test, and certainly if you're testing a website and there's a mistake on it, people will quite often just blame themselves, oh, I didn't type that in properly, or I didn't, I didn't realize that button was there, oh, I should have knew. Well, you're right, it's it's usually the, the product isn't intuitive enough, which is interesting because given that it's a voice product that everyone can use their voice to access, that's another thing that's always said is that it's easy to access, it's frictionless, it's easy to use, but you know, for some people, obviously, it's not quite the case, is it? Absolutely. I think you've often sort of said that like one of the things you get taught in design school is, you know, if you've designed a product and you have to hand over like this huge instruction manual, then you failed. You know, it shouldn't it shouldn't need that in order to be able to to use it. You said that you um, you use two echoes in one. So the owl itself had two echoes inside. Is that right? Yeah, it's probably worth uh, mentioning at this point that we did this project in about uh, sort of between uh, four and eight weeks. I don't even know whether it went as long as that. It was really intense and really, really fast. So our solution was a hack. You know, it was a it was an experiment that looked quite kind of like a finished product, um, whereas in, inside there was a sort of um, Wizard of Oz sort of <laughs> situation going on. Um but yes, yeah, so we had two dots. When we originally started, we knew that the, um, the dot itself had all the functionality that we needed with the music and the TV and everything. But what we needed to do was create the menu. Now, Amazon uh, Alexas will allow you to create your own skills. In fact, they're really quite well set up for that. However, they are really limited. They don't allow you to have many different paths they to, to have a kind of a conversation tree as we have described was actually 
quite a push. The other critical thing was that we discovered that you cannot have a skill open another skill. So if you did within, within the skill, um, in the, if you write that as the menu, if it's then saying, right, I now need to play music in, I need to open the Spotify skill, it can't do that. So in this, it, unlike um, on a smartphone where you can be in one app and it can prompt it and open another one, um, that's not possible. So that was a major hurdle for us. And we actually um, were talking to some people at Amazon and it was just, it's, it wasn't something that we could get around. So with our time constraints and with a TV film crew kind of breathing down our necks, um, we had to find workarounds. Um, originally, we used a Raspberry Pi um, and our own voice um, interface to um, create the menu. And then it would spit out a command to tell the dot what to do. So the dot, the, the command might be something like um, Alexa open the 60s playlist on Spotify. So that little kind of um, ingredient or um, command was the, um, was what was, what the dot needed to hear in order to, to do the, the bit of functionality that we needed. Uh, what we found is that with our original voice um, interface that we built ourselves, for a start, it sounded terrifying. It, the voice was really, um, it was really not a friendly um, voice at all. And it was um, having problems. Um, it, the dot was having problems hearing it. It wasn't always reliably. Um, sometimes, it, sometimes the menu would just kind of, she'd get to a certain point and it would just quit. So it was further down the line that we realized that um, in order to harness the brilliant microphone and speaker that the dot had, by having two dots, if you imagine kind of a master dot and a servant dot, then we weren't trying to reinvent the wheel at all. We were just getting the uh, the experience to be what we needed. So we had one dot, the master dot, where she, which you um, could open the menu, and then the servant dot would carry out the commands. You could have different wake words for for different um, dots. So the master dot would be woken with Alexa and the servant dot would be echo. So the, you'd say, open my menu, the menu would start to play. She would get to the command she wanted. And then it says echo, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you wouldn't have that problem of saying Alexa and then both waking up and trying to help you at the same time. Um, so that's how we got, got around that. Um, what was quite nice is it meant it had the same voice, and it had a consistency which didn't confuse Susan, whereas the, the original iteration really did. Is that clear? It's quite a, it's, it is a massive workaround, yeah. It's convoluted because it was very convoluted. <laughs> I think it's, so. It's, Go on, Dustin. Yeah, it's, it's quite a clever workaround. I'm curious, though, was the need for the workaround because you had decided early on that you were going to use Alexa or, and that was what people knew and that's what you were going with or why not? I guess the question is why not examine one of these other third party solutions? I know you exported a little bit with the pie. Uh, well, the thing is that we, we, ha we knew that all the functionality we wanted, um, we wanted available to Susan. 
the Alexa does really well and really reliably and we didn't want to dis- we didn't want to start trying to build that again having you know it have the ability to turn the tv on the other thing is is that um the one of the key components was being able to make phone calls and send voice messages so a nice established platform like the alexa is perfect it meant that all her friends and family that want to be able to communicate with her could download the alexa app and and essentially be sending messages and phoning Susan's owl, as far as Susan's concerned. Um, So we just, you know, we really wanted to focus on uh, giving her the, 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 the ability to connect to those things. And that was the, it was a really a user experience challenge. Yeah. I think, um, so what Amazon do really well is the discrete, execution so uh, making a phone call or listening to music on spotify or uh, watching tv um, they do that really well and and they pick up people's voices really well and uh, the 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 voice synthesizer is really good um but what we were basically doing is connecting the dots so providing susan with a way of accessing those in a way that worked for her (laughs) literally connecting the dots (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's, a, that's a nice little soundbite. That we'll use that. <laughs> so, so the owl is on the side. It lights up different colours depending on what state it's in. And inside the owl, there's two echoes. One of them is woken by saying Alexa. The other one is woken by saying Echo. And the one that's woken by saying Alexa is the one that Susan speaks to. And by speaking to it. Whenever, whenever she gets to the point of asking it to do something, like to put Channel 4 on, um, that Echo then speaks to the other Echo, whose name is Echo, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and, and relays the command, yes. and then that executes it. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's a translator, basically. It's speaking to Susan in a way that she is uh, familiar with or happy to, to communicate with, and then translate that, translates that into a way that um, the Echo understands. Wow. What what was the end result then? We've spoken about a lot of challenges. We've spoken about the the problem in getting onboarding, essentially, the smartphone being a, a big point of friction for people that don't have smartphones or don't know how to use smartphones. We've spoke about the how the, the, the design of the dots themselves can be a little bit intimidating and the users are feeling potentially that they're at fault for not really understanding how to use it. Um, and we've spoke about some of the kind of issues around not being able to go from one skill to another and having to do this work around. Um, what was the end result of the work? How did Susan actually find it and get on with it? So the the moment at which we were able to give her a working product and she was able to do the things that we intended, the, the impact was really quite huge. I mean, she she no longer has to rely on other people to to do the things that the rest of us take for granted. I mean, she can now change the channel on the TV, which, you know, it, it's a small it sounds small, but when you're not able to do it, it's massive. And I think um, one of the the most wonderful moments was um, I'd said to Susan, you know, give me a call, you know, phone me because I have the app and you can phone me anytime you like. Why don't you just give me a call? Um, so I know that you're, you're getting on with it. Okay. And um, lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, um, it was a Saturday and um, my phone just started going off and it just said, Susan. And I just, you know, it was just, it was wonderful. It was so wonderful. Um, and we just had a lovely chat and, and that was it. That was what it was all about. Just giving her 
the ability to do those things. Um, I think that as a as a as a project, it was hugely valuable to us to 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 experiment to understand the the limitations of voice um, in this context and take those take those learnings forward into future projects. Mm. It's uh, it's certainly certainly interesting. You mentioned that it was the the first voice project that you have done, and that you kind of apply a human centered design approach to to everything that you do. Is that what you mean by human centered design in terms of spending a lot of time with Susan, understanding her real kind of pain points, and and working with her so closely to design something that meets her specific needs? Is is that what you're getting at in terms of that human centered approach? I think I think yes and no. Um, it's un- this was a unique project because it's it's rare that you ever do it just with one person and design a solution just for for one person. It becomes very um, it's good and it's bad. It's good because um, you can really get to the the problem or very specific problem that that person may face, and you can solve for them and come up with a really bespoke um, uh, solution. But the issue is it doesn't necessarily translate to everyone. Like like we were saying. The, um, the owl housing was very bespoke to Susan. It's not necessarily something that we would suggest Amazon should now have all echoes in a owl housing because um, it just wouldn't make any sense to anyone else. Um, but I think at the heart of it, what we like to do at Smart is is really understand the user or the the person behind everything. So. So we do spend a lot of time in field talking to people, understanding their behaviours and their habits and their their pain points. And like we were saying, it's not necessarily what they say, but it's often the actions that we observe. And from that, we can we can get a lot of insights. We can then apply to our solutions. Um, so it's it's kind of it's all working in the same area, just slightly different uh, takes on on the process. I could see a market for that, though. You know, I've got an Echo on the um, on the bookshelf in the front room. Hey, so... if, you're on the, if you're on the 3D file, let me know. I can send it. <laughs> I what, what about you, Dustin? Would you prefer something a bit more kind of homely? An owl would be nice. Uh, I'm trying to think of maybe a lizard, maybe. Can you do mm-hmm. a lizard for us? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it is actually something we've been, um, we've been discussing here, how we could, how we could make this more... Um, widely available or more more appropriate for, for the wider population because we do think there's there is a big um there's a big market out there a big swathe of people who who don't who can't access or don't see the value in an echo where there is lots of value um and we've done a lot of work which we think um provided a lot of uh really valuable um usage for people so we, we're, we're thinking of ways we can maybe um apply it yeah, and I think that um, there there are elements to this product that are very specific to her, like the owl. But I think that what we like to do at, at Smart is uh, is practice real universal design. So if you look at the if you look at Susan on sort of an ability scale, she's probably extreme user. She's got very limited um, dexterity and kind of like she's got issues with her kind of cognitive um, ability. On the other end of the scale, 
you've got perhaps the uh, extremely tech savvy uh, consumer who has got all the gadgets, who's super up to speed. And if you look at both of both of their needs, um, there are there are some things that span across both. So one of the things that I think is particularly interesting is that I I really feel like a lot of people have got Alexas that are sitting on the bookshelf and you might do like one thing with them. The discoverability is actually quite poor as to what you can do unless you're quite um, proactive in learning about about what it can do. I think there could be a place for, you know, some kind of personalized um, menu option um, for a, for a greater audience, um, not to mention people that are, you know, in, in that extreme use case like Susan. Mm. Is there any is there any other kind of learnings that you've found from doing that work with Susan that, that could apply or any other barriers in terms of the technology that you think also extend? Because I think you're right, you know, that it, the discoverability is a, is a known problem in the voice kind of space. And if it wasn't for doing this podcast and actively hunting out stuff to see who's doing what and what's working well, then who knows, I probably wouldn't use it half as much as I do, you know what I mean? So is there any other things that you've found that, that, that do either either specific problems from an accessibility perspective that you've found over and above the ones we've discussed or problems that do span across the whole uh, the whole kind of user range well i think the other thing that in particular i mean we have touched on this but it there is a an idea that voice ui is human and it is like talking to a person but the fact of the matter is it's it's just not it's a lot more like talking to you know a chatbot like you might see in you know a banking app or, or something like that it's got really limited um ideas about it's got really limited responses to to things that you might ask it and things that you might try and do with it i think that one of the things that we really learned was that how do you design in a kind of um, how do you encourage people to understand those limitations? So um, for Susan, it was kind of giving giving little audio feedback about what she needed to do and say. But if we could, if you could take that into a, a more complex uh, voice UI, where you're almost like asking for forgiveness, you know, it's like where a chatbot might say by the way, I am a bot, you know, I'm only going to do my best. And you're like, oh, well, that's adorable. I forgive you. I think it's like, how can you build some of that stuff in so that you're not, you're kind of uh, giving the user the best chance possible to get what they need from it by, yeah, almost like, yeah, show, showing its limitations. I think, yeah, I think the, the, the kind of text chatbot example is a really good one because um, I've seen or I've heard a few examples where, it, first, it tells you that you're talking to a bot, but then often when it can't help you, um, a real person would jump in. It's quite interesting. It kind of owns up to the fact that it's still quite um, uh, naive or quite new, and then when it can't uh, execute what you're trying to, to do, um, a real person jumps in. But also, um, I've also started to see more of the chatbots bring in these suggested responses. So... Um, instead of giving you an, in like an unlimited or infinite amount of responses or replies, it starts to prompt you like, yes, no, or thumbs up, thumbs down. And that um, 
although it seems quite small, quite trivial, it really streamlines the interaction because um, most of the time you will be answering yes or no, or or you kind of it's going to be a binary answer. It's going to be one of two things. Um, so if it starts to prompt you in that way. Um, you can you can really streamline that interaction. I don't know how you apply that to, to voice. Um, but there are ways of doing it. There are ways of doing it. So we did it via um, feedback or by um, kind of reiterating the point that, that uh, Susan had just made. So I want to listen to music. Um, okay, great, music is a good idea. What music would you like to listen to? So you're, you're giving uh, the person these prompts or these kind of cues about how to respond. And I think that really helps. The other thing that I would say about designing um, with accessibility in mind, um, as a, in a more general sense, is yes, Susan is an extreme and she has uh, difficulties that maybe we other people don't. But actually, everybody has a, a cognitive impairment at some point that could just be when you're driving and you're trying to keep your eyes on other cars and the you know traffic lights and all this all, all these things that are going on your cognitive ability almost is it's going to be at the same level as susan like you're not fully focusing on interaction that say you might be doing with your voice in the car for example um and i think that by by exploring the extreme cases like Susan, we can start to apply some of those things in into those particular contexts where someone who is quote unquote, you know, full, fully able um, is still going to to have a problem. And there's there's lots of examples of that. Mm. It is interesting. So it sounds like I mean, the trend, I suppose, at the moment and the, the way of thinking around the design side of things is, is moving towards this more kind of situational design, which is more like a fluid sort of design where you kind of leave it open to the user to say whatever it is that they want to say. And then you kind of need to do the work to be able to respond to that. But it sounds as though from from an accessibility perspective, you know, explicit confirmations all of the time seem to work well. And also the kind of tree structure of giving a few options seems to work pretty well as well yeah and i think kind of like narrowing down the options you know like if you're if you know what the user's context is then you can start to help them out based on what they might like you know i think that's where something like the alexa doesn't do that at all because it's trying to do everything whereas if you think okay i'm designing something for i don't know a hotel room you start to know with kind of logic what what options they might need and that starts to help them create you know it starts to help you create uh prompts for them so that they don't have to think of things off the off the top of their head which if you're just using voice is going to be difficult yeah and i'd like to also maybe suggest that this i wouldn't necessarily think this is the solution long term i mean it may well be that limiting choice is is the right way to go but I definitely feel like um, one with the with the um, product being or with the interaction being in so so new, um, it's still got lots of like software hardware uh, bits it needs to iron out. But two, there's a lot that the the um, the user needs to understand about the product. Uh, at least in this early stage of of this kind of um, product's lifespan, I guess. Um, 
the hardware and software still, I mean, they're getting better every every year, every month. Um, and we aren't, I mean, it's amazing what they can do, but it is still quite early days. But I think also that users' um, understanding of what they can and can't do is, um, maybe that will take a lot longer than actually the technology takes to develop. Mm -hmm. So um, there's this learning curve people have to adopt to, to understand um, how these products work. And Ruby was talking about context, which I think is quite interesting. So currently these these um, voice UIs are in kind of a, a, a generic shape that lives in your house. I'd find it really interesting if you move those voices and put them into products. So like uh, Ruby was saying, if it was in a hotel, but more specifically, imagine if you had a voice which was in a fridge or in an oven or on a clock. <clears throat> Maybe they're different voices, maybe it's the same voice, I don't know. But you talk to the fridge specifically about fridge stuff. So maybe about nutrition or or um, shopping, uh, groceries, that kind of thing. And you talk to the oven about timing and temperature and stuff like that. And you talk to the clock about uh, your calendar, what time it is and that kind of thing. And those kind of physical um, manifestations or these physical objects give you cues about... Uh, the interaction or give you hints about what you can talk to it about. I think that could be quite interesting. Um, maybe not forever. Maybe this is just a way of onboarding people, but maybe it is. Maybe that's what it's going to move into. I don't know. Mm. It's fantastic. Fascinating stuff. Dustin, any, any final questions for Ruby and Will? No, I think this was fantastic. And I think it's a, it's a very interesting perspective and always love to hear people's hacks as well. So a dot on top of a dot is definitely a clever hack. <laughs> Wicked. Ruby, Will, where can people find out more about yourselves or find out more about the stuff you're doing at, uh, at Smart Design Worldwide? Uh, well, we have a Twitter just at Smart Design. Um, there's our website, which is at smartdesignworldwide.com. Um, so, yeah, we, we often post uh, things on there to as to what we're up to. So, give us a follow fantastic this has been absolutely immense i've absolutely loved honing in on a on a specific person with specific needs and figuring out how you ended up meeting those needs because i think you're right there's a lot of stuff that that will translate maybe the owl might not maybe it will i don't know i might get one for some people maybe yeah yeah i might get one for our kid you know what i mean have a little owl on his bedroom uh, bedroom sideboard but yeah no i've really really enjoyed that so thank you both so much for joining us it's been fantastic Thank you. Thanks very much. Actually, one thing just to, to finish with, um, we have started uh, the next phase of this project. Um, we've been getting some really great feedback um, from people and we feel like there, uh, there is a bigger audience for this, this accessibility pack, if you will. So we want to try and create um, a version that is a sort of half open source, half, you know, print your own owl <laughs> kind of solution. Um, like maybe we can create some other um, other cases and give instructions as to, to how to set it up um, for maybe, you know, a, a loved one or or someone that you might think is um, in need of, of the voice, but you know would struggle. Um, so we're just sort of kicking that off as a sort of next phase. So uh, yeah, just, if you follow us on, on Twitter, um, we'll, we'll be posting about that probably. Sounds fantastic. Ruby, Will, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Kane. That was Ruby Steele and Will Merrill. Wow, what an episode that was. That was so interesting to delve deep 
into an individual, as I was saying at the end today, delve deep into an individual's needs and an individual's context to try and find a specific individual's uh, use cases was so fascinating because we always tend to talk about voice on a, on a kind of broader scale, you know, um, but to, to get to grips with a specific person in a specific context with specific needs and then creating a specific voice interface and hardware actually uh, to meet those needs was really, really fascinating. Um, some of the interesting points in that, I thought, really from an accessibility perspective is that needing a smartphone to get set up is one of the biggest barriers that I'd never even thought would exist. I never even thought about it. That's how kind of natural I think we find it. Um, interestingly as well, from a design perspective, it seems as though, although we've been talking a lot about situational design on the podcast, and hopefully we can speak to Paul Kussinger soon about that, um, actually nested menus seem to make sense for people uh, who have cognitive impairments to some degree because people can't remember things can't remember what's kit what the skill or action is capable of so having short kind of menus is is actually possibly a good thing and narrowing down that vast choice down to a select few options um seems to work well i think that probably can apply to to the other end of the spectrum in terms of people who use it all the time but uh, it's interesting to to understand a bit more about that and also um another interesting thing i found was that um susan's responses were all really short so keeping those responses short uh, was also a good idea. And then on the hardware side, um, the actual cylinder being a barrier in itself, being a little bit intimidating, not really wanting to talk to it, not really understanding how it works and blaming yourself for getting it wrong. Um, it's really interesting how putting an owl case over the top of something, making it look a little bit different, different you know it's almost like personifying it a little bit uh seemed to work well but although there's challenges um it turns out that you know the end result was was a good one and susan was able to do things that she wasn't able to do before like turn on the tv and change the channels and call and message people and stuff like that so you know voice still does have a place from an accessibility perspective um but it seems as though there's some onboarding issues that that need to be overcome and some design uh things as well that that uh people with as i say cognitive impairments maybe the design needs to be slightly different so thank you for joining us that was really really interesting absolutely fascinating discussion and i hope that enlightens and, and kind of broadens people's horizons a little bit in terms of thinking about specific users in specific situations that might need certain functionality and at the end ruby and we were both talking about the you know, the option of of um honing in on a really specific use case you know what would it be like if your fridge had a voice interface and kind of crafting out that really narrow use case and getting that really really solid and perfect and then moving on to expand into something else it's the, the typical crawl before you walk situation um but it's really really fascinating stuff so thank you for joining us and thank you dustin as always for co-hosting and as always boys and girls thank you all for listening until next time see you later